Go to Daniel chapter 2 tonight. We're officially done with chapter 1. We're in Daniel chapter 2. Several people have asked me, you know, that took about a month to get through chapter 1. There are 12 chapters in Daniel. Is this going to be like a year-long series that we've entered into? And my response is, is no, 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 that's way too short. We're at least, at least 36 months, if not 48, and I'm kidding. Uh, we will... We'll see where it goes, honestly. I probably won't go past chapter 6 at the most. The book of Daniel is divided basically in half. You have six chapters that are historical narrative, basically. There is some prophecy in there, but it's lots of historical narrative. Those are the stories that we tell. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel chapter 1, he purposed in his heart. Those are the stories that we tell. The back half of the book is very prophecy-related. Many times teachers will use that as part of a Daniel and Revelation class together. And that, that back half of the book is important. It's vitally important, actually. It's, it's a beautiful portion of Scripture, but it is much different than the first six chapters. So we will get through the first six chapters maybe. Honestly, we're, we're looking for a pastor right now. Who knows? Two months from now, there may be a man that has candidated that we vote on and becomes our pastor, and then I will step aside and he can preach whatever he wants. So we'll see where it goes, but we're in Daniel chapter 2. We're officially done with chapter 1. I would be remiss if I didn't thank everyone who just pitched in and helped out around the church this week. We had a lot going on this week. There was girls' basketball camp, and thank you to the blacks if they're in here for helping run girls' basketball camp and doing that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Vacation Bible school happened Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday all week long. And everyone who helped out, who came, uh, parents, non-parents, teenagers, everyone who was here and chipped in and helped to serve a meal or take a kid to the restroom or teach a lesson or be in the mission room, whatever it was, thank you for your help. Everyone who was involved in Fantastic Saturday, uh, just yesterday, preparing a meal or being there as part of the day, thank you to you as well. And then there's a host of others that are just behind the scenes, uh, Brian Fabic, Silent Servant uh, Ministry, people just pitching in and, and helping clean and wash the windows and all over the place. So many of you helped out this week, so thank you for making it a, a very good, productive week for the kingdom of Christ. And we are, we are appreciative to you of your servitude and your willingness just to help out. So I tried my best not to mention specific names because there are way too many specific names to mention. So here we are in Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 1. We were introduced to two characters primarily. We, sure, there was Nebuchadnezzar and Ashpenaz and Melzar, and there were a lot of characters. But primarily, you have Daniel, and we were introduced to this teenage young man who obviously has a bulldog grip on God's word, who has some convictions that are uncompromising, who is able to stand with wisdom and discernment that is really unparalleled and far beyond his 15 or 16 years of life. George Washington said this. He said that few men have the virtue to withstand the highest bidder. And George Washington was right. But Daniel was such a man. He went through what would have produced a gall of bitterness in just about anyone I know, including myself. But he was able to take that, and as, as the lady's just saying, he was able to see the trials of life possibly as God's mercies in disguise. And he was able to stand for God despite what was happening to him. And Daniel is this picture of character and courage, and he has this quality about him that's rare. But more than being introduced to Daniel, we're introduced to God, who is sovereign through chaos in Daniel chapter 1. We're introduced to a very big powerful, omnipotent, in control, on the throne God who is giving Jehoiakim over, who Nebuchadnezzar is his servant. He's the one placing goodwill in Ashpenaz's heart for Daniel. He's the one giving wisdom. He's the one giving understanding. And we see that God is the one that's in control of all this and that this story, this book is really about him even more than it's about Daniel. But then we come to chapter 2. In chapter 2, is one of the longest chapters in the Bible. It's 49 verses, which is pretty lengthy, but the verses themselves are, they're not brief. They're pretty good sized verses. And you've probably gathered from the series thus far that we're not gonna cover all 49 tonight. We're gonna do our best to cover 13 of them tonight. But it's, it's a big chapter. And if you've gone through any sort of study, maybe personally, or in a Sunday school class on Daniel, 
Daniel chapter 2, most people think of this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, and the whole chapter really is about that. But we picture, if you've studied the book at all, this, this image with a head of gold and arms and chest of silver and so on and so forth. But before you get to the unfolding of this prophecy, before you get to here's what the dreams were, here's what the dreams meant, you have 30 verses of pure gold. You have 30 verses that we want to look at them over the next couple of weeks and mine them and find what does God have here. And really they're verses that are kind of shoved to the side sometimes and they're not the most prevalent verses if you go through some sort of sermon series or some sort of study on Daniel. But there's a ton to learn from them. There's a ton to glean from them if we look at the first 30 verses. So tonight, like I said, we'll do our best to cover the first 13 and we're going to read, at first, we're going to read the first three. So if you don't mind, if you're able to stand with me, I would appreciate that. If not, that is completely fine, and you can stay seated. No big deal if, if you're unable or even unwilling to stand. I won't hold it against you. So Daniel chapter 2, verse 1, we're going to read the first three verses. And this is what verse 1 says. And in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams. I don't know what else he would dream, but he dreamed dreams. Wherewith his spirit was troubled, and his sleep break from him. Then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Tonight, I want us to observe this subject, the unending toll of an unsettled soul. The unending toll of an unsettled soul. We'll find that Nebuchadnezzar's spirit is troubled, and this is going to take a toll on him. This is going to wear on him, and it's going to produce some fruit in his life that we would want to avoid at all costs. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would help us tonight as we look at this passage of Scripture, to observe some negative behaviors that hopefully we can do our best to avoid and that hopefully as Christians we can look and say, that's a note, that's a, that's a portion of Scripture that I want to take note of and that we can do our best to have a soul that is settled. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us. I pray that you would move me out of the way and that you would use your word to do a powerful work in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. Verse number one says this. It says, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I want to stop there for just a moment and talk about that second year. Many believe that this was actually, and I would be one of these people that believe this happened during the training process for Daniel. Now, scholars are, are on disagreement with this, and I won't, I won't belabor the point or talk about it too much, but I personally believe that this happened while Daniel was in training. You find Daniel chapter 1 that Nebuchadnezzar concert, conquers. He takes the Hebrew boys back to Babylon, and there you have the king's meat issue that Daniel purposes in his heart. I'm not going to eat the king's meat. He goes to Ashpenaz. He requests of Ashpenaz. Can I please not? Ashpenaz says, no. Sorry, man, but my head's on the line. No. So then Daniel goes to Melzar, and he creates this trial period of 10 days. And Melzar says, yeah, sure, I'll agree to that. So it works out. Daniel and his friends are found fairer and fatter in flesh. And Melzar says, man, this, this vegetable diet's really working for you guys. Just keep on doing it. And then the end of chapter 1, it says that what happens is that at the end of three years, after Daniel's learning, his Babylonian grad school, at the end of three years, Daniel's presented to the king, him and his buddies are found to be ten times better than all of the other magicians and astrologers and, and all of the wise men of that day. And then it also says that, that Daniel continues all the way through the reign of the Babylonian time period, that he continues all the way to the Persians and all the way to Cyrus. And it gives us kind of this bird's eye view. And now in chapter 2, I believe that they're kind of rewinding the tape a little bit and giving us a story in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign that here's what happened while Daniel was in training. So this is the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, we've talked about Nebuchadnezzar a little bit thus far, but we haven't laid a big foundation for who he is. So Nebuchadnezzar is obviously a Babylonian king. He's the son of Nabopolassar. What a name, right? If Nebuchadnezzar wasn't already bad enough, Nabopolassar is even worse. So Nabopolassar is his daddy. And he was a king, obviously, ruling in Babylon, in Babylonia. 
And really, at, at that point in time with Nabopolassar, the kingdom was relatively obscure. Sure, it was there. It was a real presence, but they were not a world ruler. And Nabopolassar assembled an army and began to conquer basically the known world. He conquered, and then he conquered some more, and then he conquered some more, and he kind of started at the very southwestern or southeastern tip of the Fertile Crescent and went all the way up and started to swing down to conquer the known world in the Fertile Crescent at that time. So Nabopolassar dies, and Nebuchadnezzar takes over at the very end of that campaign. And Nebuchadnezzar is left out of the known world. He's left basically to conquer Jerusalem and Judah and then Egypt. And once he does that, the Fertile Crescent is gone. It's all completely under the control of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar would be the world ruler. So Nebuchadnezzar does that in year number one of his reign. So at, at the end of his first year, he is now the world ruler. He is the king and the world is his castle, basically. Nebuchadnezzar has control of anybody who is anybody. He's in control of their kingdom, of their empire, of their subjects. They're paying tribute to him. So he is a very high, prominent man. Nebuchadnezzar, history teaches us that he was a genius, that he was an academic, that he was an educator. Nebuchadnezzar was an architect. He was a fine military tactician and a commander. He had obviously been groomed to become a king, and he had some social graces. He knew what it was like to rule and to command and to oversee his kingdom that spread all over the known world. So Nebuchadnezzar is a very powerful man with pretty much everything at his fingertips. If he wanted this food or this drink or this woman or these clothes, whatever he wanted was his. He had basically what 1 John tells us all the world consists of. John says that all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, I want to do. The lust of the eyes, I want to have. The pride of life, I want to be. And Nebuchadnezzar could do whatever he wanted. He could have whatever he wanted. And he was the end-all, be-all. He had what, what all the world could offer him. And if there was ever a man that you would think would be satisfied, if there was ever a man that you think would be content, would be able just to sit back and relax and kick it on a beach for a little bit, you'd think it would be Nebuchadnezzar. But we find the opposite. We find that his soul is troubled. We find that his spirit has this sense of unrest about it. Even though he can have everything he wants, he can do what he wants, he, he is what he wants to be. He's accomplished probably his goals in life. Even with all of this externally, internally, the waters are not calm in his soul. There is a storm inside of him that even though we would look and think, you have all of the trappings and all of the fixings to be completely and totally satisfied what the world can offer you, we find that internally, He's not. He is troubled, and he is, he's at a point where this troubled soul is, begin, is going to work itself out and manifest itself in external behaviors. And I want us to observe tonight, in these first 13 verses, the toll that this took on Nebuchadnezzar. And at the very end of the sermon tonight, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best to see how this deeply connects with our own lives as modern-day Americans and Christians and Pennsylvanians. So let's see the toll that this took on Nebuchadnezzar's life. Look at verse number 1. We'll find this first. Nebuchadnezzar was sleepless. Verse number 1 says this. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. I was saved as a 10-year-old boy, really, a middle schooler. I was in fifth or sixth grade. I, I don't remember which one exactly. I may have even been 11. I don't remember the exact date, but I believe I was 10. I think it was November of 1997. I was saved as a 10-year-old boy, but for months prior to my salvation, the Holy Spirit worked me over. The Holy Spirit of God convicted me as a middle schooler of my sin in ways that I, I cannot it's something that's tough for me to even humanly express. Some of you uh, that are in the room that, that have gone through this process, you know what I'm talking about. He just, he worked on me. And for months prior to my salvation, I would lay down at night, and the number one side effect of conviction of the Holy Spirit was I couldn't sleep as a kid. 
I would lay down at night, and I, I just could not, when I was alone with my thoughts, all I could think about was that I needed to be saved. I didn't want to go to hell. I needed to confess my sin. And I knew how to do it. I knew the verses. I had grown up in church. I, I had prayed prayers all my life. I knew how to do it. But I was unwilling to let go. Our pastor would give the same invitation every Sunday night. He would, very similar to the invitation we had this morning, he would ask us to bow our head and close our eyes no matter what the message was about. And he would ask two questions. Number one question was, if you're 100% sure that, that if you died, you'd go to heaven, raise your hand. And everyone raised their hand. And you know what? I would raise my hand, and I'd think inside of myself. I still remember fighting this and thinking, you're a liar. You, you do not know this, and you're wanting just to raise your hand so, so no one will think less of you. And then he'd ask this question. If you're not 100% sure, but you would like to know that heaven's your home, Raise your hand. And I would grip that pew in front of me. I'd lean my head on it. I'd grip that. I didn't want to raise my hand for whatever reason. And I remember the primary side effect of that conviction, of that process, was that I couldn't sleep. And, of course, months went by, and there was a night. It was a Sunday night in November that I raised my hand on the question, would you like to know? And my dad thought, I think, I think he just got the questions mixed up. You know, I think he rose his hand on, on the wrong one. But that night I went forward and I got saved and put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I tell you what, that's been almost 20 years now, but I remember that night like it was yesterday and I slept like a baby. I slept like I had not slept in months. And, and it's been said that a clear conscience is the softest pillow and that, that cliche does not float around for no reason. There is something that an internal peace with God and a rest in your soul can do for you that nothing else can do. David said in Psalm 41 that he had sinned against God, but that God strengthened him upon his bed of languishing. If there was a place that should have been rest for David, it was his bed. But David said, my sin had produced a bed of languishing where I, when I went to go to sleep, when I went to rest, I could not rest. It, it gnawed at me, it ate at me, I couldn't shake it, and I couldn't get sleep because of it. And, and truly, when our conscience is weighed, when our soul is troubled, when we're bitter, when we're stressed, it produces a lack of sleep inside of our hearts, inside of our souls. Physiologically, we find it difficult to sleep. A number of years ago, this was 2009, Michael Jackson passed away. It was June 25th, actually the day after my birthday. And Michael Jackson was preparing to set a world record for this, uh, this world tour that he was doing with his concerts. And, of course, he overdosed and went into cardiac arrest, and, and he passed away. But in doing the autopsy on Michael Jackson, they discovered something that was super startling. He had gone 60, 60, 60 nights without REM cycle sleep, REM sleep, the rapid eye movement, true sleep. He'd gone 60 nights. His doctor had been giving him a drug called propofol to give him the experience of rest, but you don't actually rest. You don't enter into rapid eye movement. Your brain does not charter. It doesn't repair itself. And you feel a little bit rested, but your brain actually does not repair itself while you're sleeping. And they've tested this out. If you test this on lab rats, lab rats can go five weeks and go 35 days, and then they die of sleeplessness. And the doctor who did his autopsy said that if he had not died from an overdose, Michael Jackson would have died in the very near future, in the next few days, of sleeplessness. Those that worked with him said that he was paranoid. He was becoming schizophrenic. He heard things. He had panic attacks. He had severe weight loss. He had to do his songs from a teleprompter because he couldn't remember them anymore because he couldn't sleep. And here is a man in our modern day and age who essentially has the world by the tail, so to speak, but is experiencing a lack of restfulness and inability to sleep. And Nebuchadnezzar is the same way, that his spirit is troubled and he... He wants to rest. He wants to sleep, but he finds it difficult to do. When I was a freshman in Bible college, I heard a professor say the words, tired people rule the world. And I grabbed onto those words as my life motto. I thought that's the greatest piece of wisdom I've ever heard in my life. And I, for about five, six, seven years, ran at a pace. And I was, I was a young man, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 
I was, and I feel like I'm still a young man. I'm not belittling myself. I think I'm still kind of young. But I ran at a pace that really was insanity, that I would try to shortcut and escape sleep as much as I possibly could, fill my schedule with as much as I possibly could, and try to sleep as little as I possibly could. And you know what I found out? Tired people rule the world is a lie. I've never met one of them and asked them if they were tired or not. But the truth of the matter is the phrase should be, Tired people are angry and cranky and suffer from panic attacks, and no one wants to be around them. That's what the phrase really should be. And I discovered that the hard way, that trying to run on a lack of sleep, we sometimes spiritualize it. We're redeeming the time is what we call it. You know, we're, we're trying to shortcut how God has made us is what we're trying to do. And that doesn't end well. God made us to get seven, eight, now some people can run on a little less, some a little more, but by and large, about seven or eight hours of sleep a night. God made us to have a day of rest once a week where we stop and pause and, and we try to make that the Lord's Day now where it's, it's a holy day, yes, but it's also a healthy day and it's restful and it's a day of, of family and we can meet each other's emotional needs. But God, God designed us even with a day of rest. That's not just for the Jewish Sabbath laws. That was established in creation. Then that was continued into the covenant and we can even find principles of that in Calvary rest and in the Lord's Day. But the point is this, we are not designed to go without sleep. God made us that way. And, and if you're in the room and your soul is unsettled and you're suffering from a lack of sleep or possibly you're like me and you're just trying to rule the world and be a tired person, I would say this, give yourself a break and give your wife your, a break and give your kids a break and give your employees a break and just get some sleep. Just do your best to go to sleep because everyone will thank you for it. And this, this unrest, this troubled soul, Nebuchadnezzar, had produced a sleeplessness inside of him that he couldn't get sleep. Then we find this. Not only was he sleepless, but Nebuchadnezzar is demanding. Look in verse number two. Then the king commanded to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, for to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. Now I know he's a king. You know, what's the big deal? He's a king. Kings are supposed to command why, why, would, why would this matter that he commanded them? But I can't guarantee this. I can't. But I get the sense from this passage that Nebuchadnezzar is troubled. He can't go back to sleep. And he is commanding, he is calling these people in immediately. I, I get the sense, I, I personally think, and it may not have been this way, but I personally think that it's 2.30. He wakes up. He's startled from this dream. He tries to go back to sleep. It's 2.45, it's 3, it's 3.15, it's 3.30. And about 3.30, he kicks himself out of bed and says, you know what, wake everybody else up and get them in here because I want to talk to them. I want them to, to give me some help. I want them to give me some advice. And I think that as they all gathered and they stood before Nebuchadnezzar, I think possibly he looked at them and said, you know what, guys, if I'm not sleeping, then yins ain't sleeping either. And you have to look real deep in the Hebrew to find the yins, but it's in there. You can, you can get that. And then, and then he told them, go rent up your rooms and save a parking space with a, with a lawn chair. But I think that he is a little, Pittsburgh, I'm a transplant, I'll be the first to admit. Some of, some of the phrases, I'm getting used to them, but they're a little strange. <laughs> they're, just, they're a little strange. The lawn chair will baffle my mind till the, till the day I die. Yens, I get yens. It's close to y'all, I understand it, but the lawn chair, I don't. All that to say... You get the sense that Nebuchadnezzar like commands these people to get out of bed and to break their normal routine and their normal schedule and all hands on deck, you're going to come serve me for this dream that has troubled me. And, and he's demanding about it. He commands them. And truth be told, we come as humans, we come pre-programmed to be demanding. My two-year-old son just last week, he woke up from his nap in the afternoon and uh, my wife walked into the room and he said, snack, sleep, outside play. Like, he woke up and just said, here are my list of demands. Can we just check these off one at a time? Give me a snack. Give me a drink. Let's go outside and let's play. You know, let's go, Mom. This, this is how we come pre-pro. We want our way. We want it now. We want it to happen. Let's do this. And we have to be taught that that's not real life, that we're not, we're, we're not able to do that with people and it actually fare well. We have, we have to learn as children that we shouldn't be demanding. I've heard, 
a number of different pastors or preachers uh, pull out a Tom Landry coach who was the coach of the Dallas Cowboys for, I think, close to 30 years. And the quote is somewhere along these lines. I've heard it in different veins, but somewhere along these lines that Tom Landry said, I made my players do what they didn't want to do so they could be who they always wanted to be. And that may be great for a football coach, but can I tell you the truth? That's not real life. Try that with your wife or your husband and see how that goes. That's going to backfire in a heartbeat. Try that with your kids, and it's not going to produce the children that you want to produce. We've all known the crazy, aggressive, I'm, I'm going to live out my high school football dreams through my children's sort of dad or mom or whatever the case may be. We've known that, that I'm going to be demanding and I'm going to push. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't ever push our kids to do something and to be productive because truth be told, we should. But to take an approach of I'm just going to be demanding with everybody and that is my mode of operation is not going to fare well. And I think for Nebuchadnezzar, his, his demanding, yes, it's rooted in his authority and his, and, his, and his position as king, but I think that it's rooted inside of a soul that is a little bit troubled. We find this in verse number three. He's also unreasonable. Look in verse number three. The king said unto them, so they're all assembled before him, and here's what he says. I have dreamed a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, or in Syrian, O king, live forever. This is very similar to what maybe a British person would say today, long live the king, or long live the queen. So he tells them, look, I've dreamed a dream. It was troubling to me. I need your help. And they say, O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said unto the Chaldeans, the thing is gone from me. If ye will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation. So he wants two things. He says, tell me my dream and then tell me what it meant. So if you will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, ye shall be cut in pieces and your house shall be made a dunghill. This, <laughs> this guy is a bit unreasonable. This is a crazy request. How many, how many of you, raise your hands, how many have ever had a dream where you felt like, I woke up, and that disturbed me a little bit. Ever been there? I think we all have. How many have ever had a dream, and you know it disturbed you, but you couldn't exactly remember what it was? It was a little shadowy or vague, and you, you, you would think, like, if I can just get one dot, I can continue to connect the dots, and I'll remember it'll all come back to me. And you know you had this dream, but you can't remember. Ever been there? This is, where, this is where King Nebuchadnezzar is right now. He's troubled, and he can't exactly remember. Some say that he is faking that he's telling them he can't remember it, but he really can so that he can actually prove that they know what they're talking about? I don't think so. I think the, the words are just that he, he doesn't remember it exactly. And, and this is where he is. He's trying to remember this. How many of you have ever had a dream that you couldn't exactly remember, but you knew someone else did something in your dream that disturbed you? Have you ever been there? I wish that in premarital counseling, someone would have stopped for like 60 seconds and said, one day you're going to have a dream, and in your dream, your spouse is going to do something that disturbs you, and you shouldn't hold them accountable when you wake up. That would have been a great lesson for someone, because that, I'm not saying that has or has not happened inside of our homes. For anyone that's engaged or newly wed in, in the room, just take that as a note, that it should be carved in stone. You cannot hold your spouse accountable for the fictional acts they commit inside of a dream. That's unfair, okay? That's unreasonable to do. And Nebuchadnezzar, is, he's disturbed at this dream. He can't remember exactly what it is, but he's disturbed at it, and he tells him, look, guys, I want you to tell me what the dream was, and then I want you to interpret it after that. And if you don't do this, I'm going to cut you in pieces and, and make your house a dunghill. And this is not like David Copperfield cutting pieces stuff. This is for real. Like he's going to kill them. He's going to obliterate everything they own if they cannot comply to this extremely unreasonable request from the king. But then it also produces this. He's not just unreasonable. He's a bit temperamental. Look in verse 6. He kind of continues this thought. He says, look, I want the dream and I want the interpretation and if you don't give it to me, you're dead, and I'm going to destroy everything you have. But then he says in verse 6, but if you show me the dream and the interpretation thereof, you'll receive of me gifts and rewards and great honor 
Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation. He pulls the, the stick and the carrot routine. In the 1800s, they discovered that you didn't always just have to beat your donkey to make it do what you wanted to do. You could dangle a carrot in front of it, and it would chase the carrot, and then it would kind of be a reward that it was chasing to try to get it. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar pulls out. He pulls out a carrot to kind of dangle in front of them of, hey, if you can't interpret it, I'll give you some rewards and honor and such, but you got to do this, and you got to do it right now. He goes from like complete psycho mode to I'll give you a cookie mode into back to demanding mode. In a matter of like a sentence, he, <laughs> he is, he's just all over the, the, the emotional spectrum here as he asks these guys to, to give a dream and give the interpretation of it. And he is, he's temperamental. He is all over the map. And I don't know what the guys in the room are thinking, but I would have to think that they're sitting there just kind of scratching their heads like, what is going on? Is this an April Fool's joke? Like, what is happening to us right now? This is, this is escalating very quickly, and Nebuchadnezzar is, is acting pretty erratically, and, and what are we going to do? He's, yeah, he's offering us a carrot, but he's also holding the stick in his hand, and the stick is death, and he's going to kill us if we can't do this. And Nebuchadnezzar, is, he's temperamental. But then he's this. Look at verse number 7. He's paranoid. Verse number seven, here's what, here's what they say to him. He gives this crazy request with this threat as well as a reward and a demand all kind of included in one, wrapped under one big package. And, and this is how they answer him. They answered again and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show the, show the interpretation of it. So same song, second verse. They're just like, king, I don't know if you missed this, but you're going to have to give us the dream. Like, we can't just magically guess what you dreamed about. That's, a, that's, that's an astronomical request. You're going to have to tell us. And then he says this in verse number 8. He says, the king answered and said, I know of a certainty. So he's sure of this. What's he sure of? I know of a certainty that ye would gain the time because ye see the thing is gone from me. And Nebuchadnezzar thinks that they're somehow, and he's, he's sure of it. He's sure that they're trying to manipulate him somehow. They are trying to pull one over on him. They're trying to get the best of him because they see that the dream has escaped him. And obviously they would see that. He told them that. And I, I think the guys are standing there, whatever it is, 3, 4, 5 a.m. in the morning, just kind of wiping sleep from their eyes, just trying to reason with him, saying, King, you, you got to give us the dream here. And he, he says, look, I know what you're trying to do, and I'm not going to let you do it. And I have to think that these magicians and astrologers or sorcerers are sitting there just kind of scratching their head, thinking, what is he talking about? What, I don't, I'm, it's tough for us to follow his logic at the moment. He says that he's certain of this. He says that he knows we're trying to do this. But what is he talking about? Have you ever had a conversation with yourself that you know the conversation's coming tomorrow or the next week or the next month, you know it needs to, and you start to play that conversation in your head? Well, here's what I'm going to say to them, and then I think they're going to say this back to me, and then I'm going to say this back to them, and then they're going to say this, and then I'm going to punch them. And then, you ever have that happen inside of your head where you, you start to play out imaginary scenarios and, and they, they produce complete and total fiction inside of our heads. And we come to these crazy conclusions that, well, I'm, you know, based on what I thought or Nebuchadnezzar, based on what he dreamed, I know that they don't want to be, I know they don't like me. I know the kids have it out for me. I know that they're after me. I know that they said this. I know they meant to, and we can, we can when our soul is, unrestful, when our soul is troubled, when we have a scenario that's, that's going to be maybe a source of conflict in our lives, we can start to play this out in our head and we can build these fictional scenarios that have no basis in reality. And nine times out of ten, what you'll find is that when the conversation actually happens, when you actually sit down and talk to your daughter or son or, or father or mother or coworker or boss, that the scenario you have built in your mind is nothing like how it actually plays out in real life. Am I right? 
we, we build these, these scenarios of paranoia inside of ourselves because our soul is, is not restful and our soul is troubled, but they're, they're not based in reality at all. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. He's convinced. He's very convinced. He knows of certainty that they are trying to, to manipulate him in some way, shape, or form, but it couldn't be further from the truth. These guys are just giving him cold, hard facts and asking him to give them the dream. We see this. Nebuchadnezzar was impatient. Look in verse number 9. He says, look, I know, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to manipulate me because you know the dream is gone. And in verse number 9 he says, but if you will not make known unto me the dream, there's but one decree for you. For I have prepared, or for ye have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me till the time be changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that ye can show me the interpretation thereof. Nebuchadnezzar basically says, look, guys, quit stalling. I want my answer, and I want it now. Give me what I want. There, there is no time here. We are, we're not putting a clock on this. You're not going to get to go think about it for a moment. Now, back up for a second and ask yourself, is Nebuchadnezzar sounding like anyone that you've known, maybe a relative, maybe a boss, maybe a coworker? that has an untroubled soul and it starts to produce this fruit that you just kind of step back and say, what is going on? Why are you acting this way? Why are you, why are you impatient? Why are you angry? Why are you demanding? What? This, is, this is the fruit, this is the toll that an untroubled soul is taking on Nebuchadnezzar. And you can start to see a lot of parallels with, with people that we interact with or we work with or possibly a, a teacher or a coach of our kids. And at, at the end of the day, we should, we should always step back and ask ourselves, you know what, they're behaving a little bit erratically. They, their behavior does not add up to me. Maybe there's something going on below the surface. Maybe there's something inside of their spirit and inside of their life that is putting them at unrest, and that's why they are breathing fire. That's why they are, are coming at me aggressively. That's why they are so difficult to deal with. Because most of that fruit, most of that is rooted in a heart issue. Most of that is rooted in a spiritual issue. That most of the time when someone is being difficult or they're being impatient, that the true source of that frustration, the true source is, is not you, is not the immediate scenario. It's on a much deeper soul, spiritual level. And you find that, that Nebuchadnezzar is definitely not exhibiting patience. Aristotle said that patience is bitter, but the fruit is sweet. And Aristotle was probably right, but Nebuchadnezzar has no interest in either of it. <laughs> he, he does not want to taste the bitterness of patience or the fruit of it. He's just impatient. He wants his answer. I want it now. Give it to me, guys. Then we find this. He's illogical. Look in verse number 10. So the Chaldeans are going to answer him one more time. And they're going to do their best to reason with Nebuchadnezzar. Twice now, all they've said is Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, I had a dream. It troubled me. Give me the interpretation. And they're like, okay. What was the dream? And he says, look, it's gone from me, and I'm not going to give it to you, and I'm going to kill you if you can't tell me what the dream is, so tell me. And they say, hold on, wait, time out. you you got to give us the dream, and then we'll give you the interpretation. He says, no, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to manipulate me. I want my answer. I want it now. And they're going to back up, and they're going to try one time their dead level best to reason with the man. And they're going to try their best to use logic with the man to see what they can come up with. And they say in verse number 10, the Chaldeans answered before the king and said, There's not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore, there's no king, lord, nor ruler that asks such things at any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. They said, Look, king, there's nobody that can do this. Think about it for a second. Think about what you're asking us. There's nobody that can do this. And furthermore than that, Nobody's ever asked anyone to do this. There's no ruler. There's not a king. There's no, there's no Pharaoh in Egypt. There's no king in Jerusalem. No one's ever asked this of anybody, even if they are a magician or astrologer or a sorcerer. King, no one has ever asked this. And they say this, verse number 11. 
It's a rare thing that the king requireth, and there is none other that can show it before the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. They said, look, what you're trying to accomplish, that's not humanly possible. This is supernatural. Only, they say the gods, they're not referring to Jehovah God here. They say this is, this is not rooted in human effort. And I'll, I'll sidestep for just a moment and say this. If there was ever a portion of Scripture that is clear that the magicians or astrology is actually not connected to the real God, this would probably be the portion of Scripture. I was born in June, June 24th, if you want to mark that down. I like Mountain Dew and dark chocolate and very large bills. So uh, hundreds are preferred, but you can go higher if you want. Uh, I was born in June, which if you know a little bit about the astrology calendar, June is kind of a split month. If you're born early in the month, I think you're a Gemini. And if you're later in the month, you're Cancer. So I technically would be Cancer, I guess. But I'll have people occasionally, probably once, twice, three times a year, maybe, that will find out for one reason or another that I'm born in June. Maybe I found out they're born in June. Oh, I was born in June too. And they'll ask me, oh, are you a Gemini or a Cancer? And my reply is always the same. I'm Christian. <laughs> I'm neither. That, that, has nothing, that has nothing to do with, with who I am, I don't believe in that. I don't, that's not connected to God in any way, shape, or form. Sure, did God make the stars? Yes, he did. But there, there is not this mystical like chart out there for me. And this is, that's pretty clear in this verse, that even the astrologers are like, hey, we're just guys. We're not connected to the gods at all, and really your request is for the gods. And they're doing their best to, to reason with him. And they're trying to help him understand, Nebuchadnezzar, this is a big ask. You are, you are making a request that's impossible for man, and honestly, they're trying to get the point across to him that this is crazy, this is unreasonable, and in a roundabout way, they're trying to say, King, you got a few empty rooms upstairs that you need to rent right now. Like, this, is, this doesn't make sense. You're behaving really crazy right now. This we're trying to very cordially and gracefully, and please don't kill us, reason with you. And you find that here's the response this produces. When the reasonable people try to reason with the king who has a troubled soul, here is what happens. Look at verse number 12. For this cause, so they try to reason with him. For this cause, the king was angry and very furious. Now, I know it's probably early in the morning, I know it's been a long night probably for Nebuchadnezzar. I know that he's tired and probably a bit cranky, but he's about to fly off the handle. He is about, I mean, really for, for little to no reason at all, he's about to lose it. And he becomes this angry, furious, fire-breathing king for little to no reason. And this if we're not careful, can be produced in our lives, even as Christians. When we get to a point that, yeah, we're saved, but I'm, I'm going through some stress or I'm going through a difficult time or there's this source of conflict in my life, and if we're not careful, it can produce anger inside of us that, that a root of bitterness could spring up in us, that we could find at a, on a deeper level that the fruit of what is troubling us, even as Christians sometimes, can be anger. And can I tell you that no one has ever enjoyed an angry person, ever. Angry people, I don't care if you're the king or if you're the peasant, they're just not enjoyable to be around. And anger builds absolutely nothing but you have the real risk of destroying everything. And this is, this is I think, what James was talking to when, in James 1.19. He said that every man should be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. That James basically says, listen up, shut up, and simmer down. <laughs> Look, we, we should do our best to just kind of hit the pause button, to, to stop, to ask some questions, to listen, to do our best to curb our anger, but truth be told, anger in its, in its purest form cannot just be managed or controlled. It has to be dealt with at a soul level. It, it is, it's an undercurrent underneath of a person that, that takes a toll. 
and ultimately comes out. My wife years ago was driving in Southern California with her friend, and I don't know, and I don't even think she knows what she did to tick off a driver, but she did, and this guy apparently had road rage to the extreme because somehow she was in front of him. I don't know if she caught him off or if she merged into his lane, and she doesn't even know, but he, they came to a stop sign, and he chased her down and rammed her car with his car on purpose. Not like, oops, I accidentally hit you, but like I ran into you on purpose because <laughs> I'm so mad. Like this is, you know, go-karts or something. And then he backed up and he took off, and she was able to get his license plate, give it to the police. They put him in a lineup. She identified him from a lineup, had to go testify against him. He had to pay a lot of money to her for the damage he did. And then they, the judge also ordered him to go into anger management classes. And I don't know a lot of people that have gone to anger management classes. I don't. I know a few. I've never known someone to go into anger management classes and actually come out and just have a, this great handle on their anger and they're not angry anymore. I've, I've never known it to be manageable. Anger is one of those things that if it's, if it's deep down rooted in you and it's probably due to another issue, then that's going to come out until you take care of that root issue. And Nebuchadnezzar's soul is troubled inside of him and it produces this anger and this fury inside of him. But not just that, he turns violent. Look at, look at verse number 12. For this cause, the king was angry and very furious and commanded the men to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain. So he, he wasn't bluffing. When he said, I'm going to cut you in pieces and I'm going to make your house a dunghill, he wasn't fooling around. This was not an April Fool's joke. He, they say, look, king, this can't be done. And he says, okay, kill them all. And he gives a decree. <laughs> he, he says, do this. We'll find later on in the chapter that Ariok, the captain of the king's guard, the Bible says, was ordained to slay the men. That he, he said, Ariok, you know, I knight you. Go kill them all. That's, that's your job. How would you like to get that task for the day? Go kill everybody. But he is, he is not messing around. And this anger and this fury and this unsettled soul produces violence inside of him. And I think in our day and age, we are constantly bombarded. Every time we turn on the news, it seems like, with some sort of random act of violence that's, that's perpetrated somewhere, someplace on somebody. And nowadays, it's, it's this mass violence that's happening. And you know what's funny? We come up with the craziest solutions to stop it. The solutions that we offer for stopping the violence consist of banning Muslims from being in the country, which is crazy, or taking away automatic weapons. How is that going to actually solve the problem? Now, it may, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a social science major. I don't know if that would help a little bit or not. I don't know if that would save one life or not. I'm not prepared to, to stand here and say yes or no. But I do know this, it's not going to solve the problem of violence as a whole. Because the problem of violence is not rooted necessarily in your religion or in the weapons you own. It's rooted on what's going on underneath the surface. It's a spiritual issue. It's an issue that people need God for. People need Jesus Christ and his forgiveness and his comfort and his love for. It's an issue that we're not going to solve with, with little silly suggestions. And Nebuchadnezzar's problem, his soul, it's taking a toll on him, and it produces this violence. It's been said that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that cliche is right. This has gotten to Nebuchadnezzar's head. He is the ruler of the world, and he can do what he wants. And he says, you know what, guys? You can't come through. Kill them all. But then this lastly, we see not only was he angry and violent, but he's self-destructive. Look at the very end of verse number 13. The beginning of the verse says that the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and then it makes it very clear, and they sought Daniel and his fellows, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to be slain. The king is going to kill the one person that can help him. And we'll find out in the chapter that Daniel does come through, and Daniel does help him with the help of God. But the king is going to cut off the only viable option that really is on the table right now, the, the one person who's truly connected to God, 
that can get him this answer, he's going to be self-destructive and he's going to cut that off. He puts out an APB on Daniel and his friends, and there's wanted posters all throughout Babylon. Wanted, Daniel and his friends, dead or really dead. This is, he's going to kill them. He gives the decree, and we don't naturally think of chapter 2 as this life and death scenario for Daniel and, their, and, the, and his friends. We think of, oh, yeah, the fiery furnace, that was life and death. And the lions, and that was life and death, and God came through. But chapter 2 is a life and death scenario. And we're going to find out that God does come through and God does flex his muscles. But this is, this is a big problem for Daniel and his friends. And what this did inside of Nebuchadnezzar, the toll that his unsettled soul took on him, produced fruit that is indescribable. To think that in a matter of, I don't know how long this conversation took. I would think at the most an hour, but realistically probably 10, 15, 20 minutes. That what happened, how this escalated so quickly because he is not at rest because he does not have peace because he's troubled. This is what it produces in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Now let me take a moment and connect this to our hearts and our lives as modern-day Americans and Pennsylvanians. 99% of the unrest and the trouble that exists in our souls, I think, can be boiled down to four reasons. The odds of you having a dream that troubles you this, month, this much is probably unlikely. There's probably four reasons why we would find in our soul that we have unrest. The first one is salvation. And the answer to that is Jesus. That in my own heart and life, as a 10-year-old kid, boy, young man, whatever you want to call me, I experienced this. I experienced severe unrest as the Holy Spirit of God worked on my heart and, and grabbed and squeezed my heart and convicted me of my sin, and it produced deep, deep unrest in my soul. And there very possibly could be, I understand I'm talking to the Sunday night crowd. I understand that you've all probably been in church for a decent amount of time. It was a Sunday night that I got saved, and I had been in church all my life. I knew the Romans Road. I could say the prayers. I could tell you all about Jesus. I could do it all. I could lead you to the Lord. But I wasn't saved. And it produced unrest in me. And my soul was so troubled at that. And can I tell you, if you are in the room and you've been battling that and God has been working you over and God has been convicting you and God has been telling you you need to get it taken care of, you need to go forward, you need to talk to one of the pastors, you need to raise your hand, you need to get saved, then do it. There is a solution for your unrest. It's Jesus Christ. He has paid the penalty for your sin. And we can experience, as Romans 5 says, peace with God because of Jesus Christ. So if salvation is troubling you, it doesn't need to. There's a solution, and his name is Jesus. But second is sin. And the answer to this is Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. David said in Psalm 51, his penitential psalm, he said that my sin was ever before me. He said, I could not shake it. Everywhere I went, there was my sin standing right in front of my eyes that I tried to ignore it, and I tried to sleep it off, and I tried to make myself busy, and I tried to do something else. But no matter what I did, my sin just, it had a hold of me. I couldn't get rid of it. I couldn't, I could not shake it off of me, and it troubled me, and I, and I was at unrest. If you read Psalm 51, Psalm 43, you find that it disturbed him in a deep, deep way. And can I tell you? If you are right now dealing with the sin and God is working on you and he's telling you, you need to get that right, you need to confess it, you need to get that right, I've been in your shoes. I felt that. I know what that feels like to put your head on the pillow and, and not be at peace and not have rest, not because of your salvation, but because there's, there's some sin in your life that you don't want to let go of. You don't want to shake it. And Jesus is the answer for that. He, want, he wants to love you and embrace you and forgive you and give you a peace that no one else can. There, there is no replacement in all the world for a clear conscience and knowing that I, I feel clean and I feel pure and I feel right 
and I am okay with God. If that's you, I encourage you, come tonight and just, just have a moment with God and tell him, God, I'm sorry. You'd feel a lot better. <laughs> I, I, feel, I feel for you. And, and I think that we can all relate with that because we've, we've had those moments where when we, when we walk away from the invitation, from the prayer, from the altar, from our prayer closet, from our bed, wherever it is that we get right with God, that we, we feel this peace that's just unexplainable. And if, and if sin is troubling your soul, I tell you the answer is Jesus, and he wants to help you with that. The third reason that sometimes our soul is troubled is stress. And you may have guessed it by now. The answer is Jesus. If, if you are going through a period of unrest, of your soul being un, unsettled, that you, you just can't get it all done, there's not enough hours in the day, you don't know what you're going to do about this relative or this friend or this situation at work and the financial pressures are compounding and I feel like I'm the chief rat in the rat race and life is just weighing me down and I can't, I just, I have deep sighs and, and my muscles are tensed and it's creating physiological problems inside of me and panic attacks and all the rest of that can go through. If, if you have that, if you are experiencing the stress of life that's weighing you down, can I tell you, Jesus wants to be the answer. Run to him, and you will find a peace and a joy and a renewal of strength is what the Bible says you will find if you do that. Isaiah 40, verse 31, a very famous verse says, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That we'll be able to renew our strength. We'll be able to fly in the rigors of life. We'll be able to run in the rush of life. We'll be able to walk in the routine of life. But all that's conditioned by waiting on the Lord. Like a waiter or a waitress waits on somebody. That you, you live for him and you long for him and you listen to him and you love him. That when you do that, the Bible promises that Jesus will give you a renewal of strength. That the solution to your stress is to come to Jesus if you're heavy laden and, and take his yoke and you'll find that the burden is light. You'll find that he's able to give you the true peace that you need. The fourth and last reason that we sometimes are troubled in our soul is sorrow. Can I tell you the answer is Jesus. There, there are moments Sometimes months, sometimes years, periods of times in our life where we just go through sorrow, bone-deep, sheer, agonizing sorrow that you lose a loved one. Several in our church over the last couple weeks have lost loved ones, and that hurts. We or our friends hear the word cancer. We feel like we're losing our kids we don't know what to do, and we have these moments of sadness and despair, depression even. Can I tell you that you can cast all your care upon him because he cares for you? He is the only person that can truly know what you're going through and take it and walk that mile with you and come alongside you and help you through your sorrow. Jesus Christ knows what it's like to be misunderstood. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by a friend. He knows what it's like to lose a loved one. He lost Lazarus and he wept about it. He knows what it's like to go through physical pain. Jesus can take your sorrow, your care, your trouble, and he can go it with you. He can comfort you and he can give you a peace and a help like no one else can. Because he's been there and he can relate with you, he has walked this earth in the flesh and he knows what we go through. And no matter what it is, I don't care if it's salvation or sin or stress or sorrow, the solution to that is Jesus. That we, we have the solution and you're, we're going to find in, in Daniel chapter 2 that Daniel does ultimately point Nebuchadnezzar to God, and I'm thankful that Daniel is able to play that role in his life. But we as Christians, we have the solution at our fingertips. We have it 
at, right at our prayers that if we would just go to Jesus, if we would just run to him, we would find that our unrest that is taking a toll on us, it's weighing us down, that we are tired of, we are able to give it to him, to turn it over to him. And no matter what it is, he can help us with it. He can be that peace and that strength and that comfort that we need. I'd say that there is absolutely no reason for an unsettled soul to take an unending toll on anyone in this room. Go to Jesus. You'll find him to be sufficient. You will find him to be far more than you ever could have hoped for. He longs to give you peace. He longs to give you rest. He longs to settle your soul. And can I tell you, he is the only one who truly can. The solution for an unsettled soul is found nowhere else other than in Jesus Christ.